Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hi, I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, a hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator getting a booster shot. Hi, I'm Mark Mildred. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics. Happy to be at AUKUS in person for the podcast. Booster shot. Good morning from AUKUS. This is Leonard Buller, uh, academic orthopedic surgeon at Indiana University, and I'm happy to be in person. Hi, I'm Jenna Bernstein. I'm an academic surgeon at Yale University in Connecticut, and I am looking forward to my podcast debut. This is David Landy. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky, uh, where I currently operate, but I'm looking for new block time in the metaverse. Greetings from the AUKUS annual meeting. In this next podcast, we're going to hear from Drs. Lowry Barnes, sitting president Rich Iorio, and Dr. Dan Barry. Hello, I'm Lowry Barnes. I'm the chair at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. In addition to being the chair of the department, I am also the service line director for the Musculoskeletal Service Line, and just finished my term as president of AUKUS. Congratulations. How's it feel not to be president anymore? Past president's not a very bad role. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us, though, what it was like to be president during the height of COVID and coordinating the annual meeting? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, a lot of stress. Michael Minigini, the program chair, was absolutely incredible. AUKUS is such a strong organization that our committee structures work well, and the leadership was very much attuned to the needs of our membership. People were ready to get back to a meeting. We had many people who couldn't travel because of institutional rules, et cetera, and some who just didn't feel safe. And so as a group, we decided that uh, we'd go forward with a hybrid meeting last year. And it was a close vote, and I almost had to break the tie. And it went well. It was just, we did it in a very safe manner. And I think our membership appreciated it. I have had more people compliment us on moving forward with a meeting last year at this week's meeting. And you know, It's obviously great to be here and being able to see everybody. This is not just an educational meeting. It's a cultural experience for our group, right? And so you're seeing your friends. So it's important that that we're able to get together. Certainly the hybrid nature allows for those who can't attend, but um, we certainly hope that our members will continue to want to come to Dallas uh, in November every year for years to come. Do you see a hybrid offering in the future? Yeah, I think, you know, we have that this year, and I think we'll continue that for those who, um, who want to access it that way. You know, it's a oh, great way to get more point. international involvement. No doubt about it. We will certainly grow that. The challenge is the time difference. Yeah. It's a little bit challenging, but um, we certainly want to grow international membership, and that's a good way to do it. What are you most proud of as your of your year as president? That the organization didn't slip during um, the pandemic and that we kept a focused group of leaders moving the ball forward. And we had some strong initiatives. We developed the diversity advisory board during the term. And that's a big thing and it's going to be bigger and bigger as AUKUS goes forward. AUKUS recognizes areas in our membership that need support. The WIA, the Women in Arthroplasty, the Young Arthroplasty Group, now a diversity advisory board. So I think AUKUS recognizes problems not only for our members, but also for patients and work to, to make sure that we address those needs. Absolutely. It's important for patients to see doctors who look like themselves. And it's great, everything you did to try and promote that and really get that started for AUKUS to move forward. So it's much appreciated. Well, thank you. You know, our challenge is, it's one thing if they get to see doctors who look like them. 
unfortunately, our challenge is ever getting them to the doctor's office so before yes. they find out whether or not the doctor looks like them because too many of our underserved minority don't know what's available to them. And that's something that I challenged the, the diversity advisory board this morning at the symposium to help figure out how do we address that issue. Certainly, we're investing more in public relations now from an advocacy standpoint. We need to include that in our PR program. Building off that, do you think there are geographic needs that AUKUS may in, in the future try to address? Yeah, I'm not sure how AUKUS will do that, but there are certainly geographic needs. If we look at breakdown by counties in the United States, we know that there are underserved geographical areas. Many of those are underrepresented minorities, but some are just rural America, but it does become a socioeconomic issue. So there are a lot of ways that patients uh, feel like they don't have access to care. And, you know, we have to do better not only getting our message to patients, but getting our message to the primary care doctor in some of these rural communities because unfortunately they don't all know what's available or the indications when to refer a patient to an orthopedic surgeon and we have to be willing to get out of our comfort zone. We have to go in our state, we have to figure out a way to get to rural Arkansas and make access available and it's not very easy. technology uh, as this expands hopefully that will continue. so yeah, that's a VR, just, a VR uh, utility, you know, right? I mean, there, there are so many, so many opportunities moving forward as long as Congress continues to reimburse this sort of activity and promotes this. No doubt about it. It's a plus, but the challenge is those same yeah, rural yeah, access to technology. Yeah. Same Fair issue. We're, I, I, and we have a big push in our state to get broadband access across the state, and we're getting there with government, government support. But they don't feel comfortable accessing it many times. Great point. Going around the booth yesterday, that was my challenge to most of our industry partners was, these are great technologies. How are we getting these to patients who don't currently have Wi-Fi, who don't have the same access? We're creating more disparity in the care that we're providing because those patients don't have access to even participate in having this app that tells them how they're doing or having certain technologies put into their joint replacement. They're more expensive. They don't have access, and, and I don't know how you solve that because we want to move forward. We want to continue to, to develop technology. We also don't want to leave patients behind. Yeah, Absolutely, and sure. you know, we take we know that there are health literacy issues. Even when we see our patients in the office, talking to our patients, giving them written material, when we bump that up to technology, it becomes even more challenging. Well, and access, but also facility with the technology. Right. Just giving someone broadband doesn't make them able to use an iPhone camera. I'm sure you've all seen doing telemedicine oh, visits. You bet. <laughs> you bet. And the thing we're looking at is whether or not we can use our regional programs from our university. I certainly have the benefit of being in a university setting now, and we have a number of regional programs around the state. And so we're looking, how do we bring patients into those rural settings, to our rural locations, and then accessing digital technology there so the specialist can see them because mm-hmm. then you have yeah. someone to help them with the technology and, and make it more available. But I, I still believe there's nothing like, if you're going to develop trust, In there's person. nothing like shaking the patient's hand and tell me you're going to do your best for them, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and you just can't do that over the internet. So. What's something that you've seen at the meeting that you think is going to impact your practice? Uh, great question. I'm not sure when it will impact my practice, but certainly the whole discussion of kinematic alignment will change what we're doing in knee replacement over the next decade as we see what is the right alignment technique as we collect more data. So certainly that is one area from a technical standpoint. 
Otherwise, nothing significantly changed from a technical standpoint yet, but we just got started with this meeting. We still right. got <laughs> we have a, lot of, we have a lot more meeting to go. Right, that's fair point. Anything else, you, a session or a symposium or a paper that you're particularly looking forward to for the rest of the meeting? Yeah, you know, I, I really enjoyed the diversity symposium this morning, and I'll be a part of the economic discussion this afternoon. We did the business course yesterday, and I uh, had great interaction at it. And, you know, I think it's important that we as a society figure out how we can help our members understand the significant challenges they're going to have in the coming years from a financial perspective. We can talk about diversity and underrepresented minorities getting care of as, long, as much as we want to, but if we don't figure out a way to make it economically viable for our members to stay in practice, then that divide is going to get larger and larger. And there are economic challenges ahead. To our young members listening, the junior faculty, the residents and fellows, any suggestions in getting involved or actionable items that you think we should be doing tomorrow? Advocacy. Tell so, us more. <laughs> so what does that mean? Yeah, so reach out to AUKUS and let them know that you're willing to be involved. We have grassroots efforts, so when issues come up, you can get involved at that level. We go to Washington every year and visit with our congressmen and senators, and that is a time, to one, you learn a lot about what's going on, and two, it gives you an opportunity to meet your peers who are doing the same thing and share your message, and it's, it's a great way to get involved. Give money to your candidates. Like it or not, money to candidates means access to candidates and a chance to visit with them. So, thank you very much. Thank Appreciate it. Thank you. Y'all have a great day. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks for thank stopping by and taking the time. Hi, I'm Rich Iorio. I'm the Chief Adult Reconstruction at Brigham and Women's Hospital and also the Vice Chairman of Clinical Effectiveness. And I'm the president of AUKUS this year, a very exciting year as we gather in Dallas in person together in full force, but also with a virtual component, which is, has a significant number of viewers. And I was just watching the symposium up in my room to see what the video component was, and it looks really good. So we're excitingly innovating with this type of technology, and I think it'll open up audiences for us uh, across the world. So that's great. Well, thanks for joining. We're extremely excited to have you as our president. And no, you're making some big changes. What are your biggest priorities for, for your year? So traditionally, AUKUS has been rooted in academic, rigorous teaching, right? We, do, we have great podiums, evidence-based, peer-reviewed material that is unmatched for any other meeting for concentration for arthroplasty. We've begun to do cutting-edge multi-institutional research studies in conjunction with other societies such as Hip and Knee, and we've started to fund those on the direction of Rand Schwarzkopf and, and Thorsten Seiler, which are exciting. And, and we're going to try and answer larger research questions about infection and other big topics that would have not been possible on an individual basis before. And then we do advocacy, where our goals are to maintain access for our patients, uh, and to maintain a lifestyle for our surgeons within the regulatory and compensation environment that we're in, which is difficult. Healthcare is a target. We're a, a very expensive part of Medicare, and we can't look at this as, as gains and losses. We have to think of it as trying to maintain what we have. And, you know, we all make a good living, and it's a pleasure to treat our patients, but we have to look at compensation and reimbursement as a a component of how we maintain access for patients to see us 
and we have to be able to keep the lights on. So there's a certain minimum level of, of reimbursement that's necessary. We understand that healthcare is going to move toward a more value-based approach. It's going to go toward more longitudinal bundles. It's going to go toward more restratified and social determinants of health type tiered care delivery patterns, maybe even disease management at, at some point. And we want to be part of that. We think orthopedic surgeons in general and arthroplasty surgeons in particular, when we talk about arthritis, are the people who are the best providers of musculoskeletal health, and we should be able to champion those bundles. And we're willing to share risk. We're willing to partner with our internal medicine colleagues, but we think we should be in charge of the arthritis bundles. And we think we've demonstrated the ability to manage bundles in a, in a very cost-effective way. We've increased quality, we've cut the episode of care cost, and we've been able to maintain access for our patients. We're the only group in the bundles that did that, much more successfully in BPCI than the hospitals did in CJR. We're going to send this podcast to all our, our uh, legislative representatives just to make sure that they really get the point then, too. Well... And unfortunately, legislation doesn't cover our reimbursement. It's a regulatory environment. We're in the RUC. The RUC is a bunch of our peers from the AMA who don't happen to share your passion for what we do. Until their if, family member needs a joint replacement. Then, then they do. Yeah. So the, the movement toward longitudinal care, disease management, bundled care gets us out of the regulatory environment and allows us to really show our, our worth. So the fourth pillar that, that I'm interested in is philanthropy. I mean, we, we ACUS is a very successful organization. We're fortunate, we're well-funded, and we can do what we need to do in our other three mission arms. So now we're, we're, we're investing in FAIR to help the research budget. We're investing in OpWalkGo. We're trying to nationalize the OpWalk systems to help them with transportation, shipping, protocols, etc. Trying to make it easier for new chapters to form and to export arthroplasty to less advantaged places. So those are our four pillars. How do we do that? Well, what you know? Let's face it. Acus traditionally has been not the most diverse group of surgeons in the world. But we've started women in arthroplasty. We've started the young arthroplasty group, which you're all members of. You know, we don't know, you know, my age group doesn't know what a podcast is. And we also have you know, the diversity board now, which, you know, listen, it's going to take eons to get a fully balanced and reflective of general society a group of surgeons. It's, it's difficult, right? I mean, it's not something that's easy to do. It has to be done from the grassroots, and we have to be more welcoming. But I think we're at least making efforts to do that and I think you can see it on the podium today and it, it's it's a good start and let's face it not everyone's comfortable with this right it, traditions are tough so sometimes you just have to do it and hope for the best and do the right thing and I, I think we're trying to do that it's I good will, for us to be uncomfortable <laughs> you know it pushes you well and it's nice to see AUKUS made a like the symposia right now on gender and racial disparities in, in medicine it's nice to see that that is a priority because we are not as August, we're not as diverse as we should be, and we need to do a better job with that. So it's nice to see that the leadership is making that a priority. Well, you're absolutely right. Dr. Barnes uh, saw that in the PL. Not everyone shares your opinion. It's not exactly universal, sure. and I say that with a little bit of regret, but we have to make it uncomfortable for people who are uncomfortable with it, right? And so all right, we ripped the Band-Aid off, and now we'll start. So what advice do you have for members of the Young Arthroplasty Group who are 
attending the meetings, who are really interested in getting more involved in AUKUS, what do you think is the best way for them to start? So we have a lot of opportunities, but you, you have to show interest, okay? The committee structure is somewhat rigid, and I apologize for that. You have to apply, and then you have to be accepted. And our, the way we appoint people to the committee is a little bit archaic. Basically, you know, the next president sits around in a room with a small committee and figures out who the, the next person is. And they, we don't know everybody, right? I mean, we don't know who you guys are. That's why the Young Arthroplastic Group is here, so we can have a sort of bench and figure out who's interested in, in what we want to do. So now one of the younger guys, Ben Schwartz, I don't know if you know him, so he was my resident. He's sort of an entrepreneurial guy. He loves to do digital media. He does a lot of small startup type stuff. She had an idea. Well, how, you know, all young surgeons want to get involved with industry, right? Well, industry's kind of tied up with the older guys that have done a lot of stuff. But there are a lot of opportunities out there. You guys are smart. You've got other talents besides just designing implants. Designing implants may not be the best way to maximize your talent. And and you need to be passionate about doing whatever you're going to do outside of orthopedics. Orthopedics is a hard enough job in and of itself. Never mind taking care of your family and your significant others and your kids. So we're going to do like a Shark Tank thing maybe on Thursday. Before the meeting, we're going to have smaller startup type businesses that are looking for physician input that are looking for physician leaders that are maybe looking for physician investment they can pitch you you can pitch them maybe you pitch your own ideas so that's one thing and mark cuban to come he's in the city right yeah dallas yeah so mark you've seen the forbes blog i'm sure so prem is one of my fellows he does phenomenal articles by the way yeah Uh, so he's striking a nerve right so we have a new advocacy listen we, we're going to do the traditional stuff josh and his team do a great job with hutch and adam rana but legislatively we're limited right i mean uh, congress doesn't vote on what we make uh, for joint replacement cmmi makes the the regulatory environment those are career bureaucrats right they're very passionate they have their ideas they don't necessarily have their finger firmly on the pulse of what's going on so we have to educate them and they've been pretty good with us. They've evolved on risk stratification. They've evolved on the proms. They've evolved on some of the pricing structures. But in the end, don't make no mistake about it, Medicare wants to save money. And joint replacement is the highest cost center in Medicare. So we've demonstrated that we can cut the cost of their episodes, but we've reaped no benefit from that. As a matter of fact, one could say we've been punished for our success. Remember, total joint replacement is one of the few interventions in Medicare that's had decreasing reimbursement since 1991, but increasing intervention. That doesn't make any sense. doesn't happen in any other industry. But we do such a good job for our patients that we tolerate that. I don't know how much longer that goes on or how much further. And, and, and listen, we don't threaten. We're not, we're not going on strike. We're not... We just need to amplify that message. So hence, getting back to Forbes, Prem's touched a nerve, right? Prem's, you know, Prem's an angry young man. He's got issues with everything that's going on in healthcare, and he's absolutely right. And he writes about it in a way that maybe I wouldn't do. So that 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 sort of perspective is awesome, and he writes in a very colloquial way that gets gets his message across to younger folks and to patients and, and to different audiences. And you know, we ask everyone in AUKUS and everyone out in the audience that you know, if you like what he writes, amplify it. Put it on your social streams. 
I try not to tweet because I tend to speak too much, so I, I try and stay back. But we have a whole team of people here that do that, and we're trying to get that alternate message across that we are the patient's best advocates, right? Our partners in industry get it now that they need to partner with us to provide a lower cost total joint option. They have to help us keep the cost down, but maintain the quality. In reality, the hospitals don't really get this part of it. You know, they get their own reimbursement. They want to do what they want to do. You know, they still get paid if they have a readmission or a dislocation. Value-based care hasn't permeated everywhere. We need to change that focus. And, you know, an industry physician hospital partnership that that reduces that cost so that the pie gets bigger and maybe gets more longitudinal because hospitals don't care about longitudinal care right they only care about whatever their metrics are they get reported and if you get a complication after 90 days they don't care they, they, they get another admission they get to take care of it and because of our decreasing reimbursement we're getting marginalized within the hospital i mean you can see it now they want us in the community. They want us at ASCs. They don't want us taking up beds for cancer or heart disease. And our patients need to know this. About young members getting more involved, any thoughts about allowing for volunteers on the committee level, like the Women in Arthroplasty group does, for people who maybe aren't at the level where they're ready to serve on the committee but want to get to know people, want to get more involved, especially those who maybe don't have as strong academic mentorship? That's a great idea. Yeah, I'll mention that to Brian. Brian Springer's the next president, so he'll start. I, I, Josh, we can probably do that. I mean, the problem is, as you know, and I'm a dinosaur, I kind of like committees of one. They kind of get a lot of things done. Committees of 50 generally don't. So be non-voting, maybe non-speaking members. <laughs> Invisible. <laughs> but, if, <clears throat> I mean, that's a great but point. Yes, so and to your point, and I don't mean to, to joke, yeah. your viewpoint's not inconsequential because as you can see by the change that's going on around here we listen right we know it can't be my world right it's got to be your world and and that's important so we understand and i think multiple perspectives are important and so maybe you know for somebody that's in private practice i don't have maybe have the pedigree or i don't have the you know the academic connection so we've always had this problem sure you know and hypnesis even worse right because it's more elitist but this is supposed to be your organization right so it shouldn't be dominated by the academics here now the podiums are that's because they do more research but the committee structure shouldn't be and i don't think we discriminate based on you know it's more interest so the interesting thing now is you guys are two young white males right if you're an accomplished younger female or diverse candidate you are going to be pushed forward and we did that on purpose which is great, but we also want to make sure that everyone feels, especially those who don't have academic mentors who can help promote them and know them. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. But listen, Adam Ron is in private practice up in Maine. He's the advocacy chairman. Luke Worth is in charge of the industrial relations. There's a lot of private practice people who come up through here, right? But if you want to talk about amplifying a voice, the majority of joints that go in are in private practice around the country. and, And there's... So, 
or in a hospital employed. So it's about fifty percent of the joints are done by AUKUS members. Yeah. Okay, and about fifty percent of AUKUS members are academic. Yeah, go ahead. Excuse me. So one question I've had is, as AUKUS continues to expand in so many different roles, and the membership continues to increase and become more diverse, how do you see the relationship between AUKUS and AAOS evolving over time? We work strongly with AAOS on advocacy agenda. We had dinner with them Thursday. They're very solicitous. We're one of the few subspecialty societies still in the building at AAOS at Rosemont. Kevin Bozick's upcoming president. We've been very fortunate with arthroplasty people in, in the presidential line. They get what we want to do. Now remember, and we have to be fair, and I, listen, no one's been more critical of the academy than me, but Bosco is one of my best friends, and you have to understand their standpoint too. They have to represent 30,000 people. We're 5,000, right? So we're one-sixth of their membership. They have to do things one way. We agree in about 90, 95% of what, what we advocate for, but there's some things we agree to disagree on. We're currently going through some reorganization issues with the Board of Orthopedic Specialty Societies. Kevin Plancher's our representative. Dr. Yates is now the secretary. So we're going to give that another go, see if that can more integrate the, the House of Orthopedics. It may not work. I mean, the BOS waxes and wanes. It, it worked best under Dave Halsey. What is the thing you're most excited about at the meeting this year? Happy note. Let's go to an academic topic, right? I think it's clearly AR, VR, right? I think the haptic feedback. I, listen, I test drove one of these things two years ago. It was a disaster. We won't talk about the company. It was horrible. And now, you know, I'm not a video game player, but it looks fun. It looks accurate. I have some concerns about accuracy and, you know, the first time you, the, the first time it says cut here, you know, you got to make sure that's there is where you're supposed to be, right? So obviously the registration becomes even more important than with the robots. So, But given the lack of volume, the difficulty teaching, the pandemic, that could be a real way to supplement what we normally do and get people ready for the OR uh, in training and then also as a platform to do our surgery. We were kind of talking about that beforehand. It seemed like two years ago, kind of the big thrust was robotics. And, you know, what is the thrust of this AUKUS? You know, what, what's the latest and greatest technology? And I mean, we were talking about augmented reality, how it's kind of up and center now. But, yeah, some cool stuff that can be Well, you know more about that than I do. What do you think? I don't know. Like you said, I haven't seen if it says cut here that that's the right place to cut. And if you can prove that, I think there are some real benefits as opposed to maybe spending seven figures on a robot, especially as we transition more to like a ASC based or I'm doing more of my cases at the ASC. And as capital keeps going down, you really cannot have these. The problem is I don't think it's necessarily independent of the robot. You still need the, the cuts to be accurate. It may help with balancing. I think the real value, it might help with surgery eventually. Let's face it, we're going to be in ORs 10 years from now that have all this stuff in it, right? And it's not going to cost more money. It's going to be part of the deal. But when we think about how we test competence, if we had an augmented reality VR environment, so someone could show me they know how to do an arthroscopy. Someone could show me they know how to do a total joint, and they could do it we virtually. Were just and the, and about the computer that can pass you. Yeah. Right. I mean, how about certification for me? Right, to make sure I don't have a tremor and I'm still on, I still got my fastball. Then we don't have to do all this other baloney, right? 
And I, I, I will say, I think a cool thing that has yet to be harnessed is just patient involvement with VR. Like I had a company send me a VR set and it was a how to do like a anterior total hip. My son did 75 anterior total hips by the time we returned that VR uh, VR headset. Is he looking for a job? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're looking for an but, anterior, yeah. yeah. But I mean, he... I, patients now like they know what vr is and to actually like show them okay instead of going into surgery you don't have a line on your hip and now you have a line on your hip like this is how complex of a thing we do this is maybe why it's a big surgery i think there's like a real benefit to like make patients see that we are doing just incredible things so i think that's a potential benefit of vr transparency is never bad never bad and i mean look at as you've gone through your training right and you do a mako or another Navio, other Velis or Corey. Residents, younger trainees, naturally gravitate toward that technology much more than I do. Like the workflow to them, once they do one, it's like, I get it, right? It, it, it clicks. Now, if the robot screws up, can they fix it? That's a whole other story, and that's why... You know, we still have to stick around. And that happens more frequently than we probably let on. And then there's still some judgments that need to be made uh, as far as the kinematics, etc. But I think it's a much faster transmission of learning curve from teacher to trainee. And virtual reality can't hurt that. It's got to help it. Well, even the ability to, to not really think about the instrumentation so much, but the ability to actually first going through training when you're just worried about what's the next tool you know if you kind of have that background you have that foundation you can now probably start to think critically about the surgery that you're doing more and just you're right bring that learning curve down well think about it the first time you see a knee replacement you're a third year medical student you walk in you've never been in an OR before and you look around you're like you're overwhelmed then you come back two years later and you're an intern and someone says help me with this knee replacement you're clueless, right? I mean, really. Some people are just naturally good at it. Other people take a long time to pick that up. <laughs> some Don't some never. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, with augmented reality, you could test them. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir. No, yeah, you're thank welcome. You Great. Thank you so much for Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. I'm Dan Barry. I work at the Mayo Clinic. I have been a hip and knee arthroplasty surgeon my whole career, and I'm looking forward to talking with all you guys this morning. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Barry. So before we get started into some of the topics we want to cover with you in terms of the AJR, tell us a little bit more about some of your favorite memories over the years of AUKUS. You know, I think the thing that I've really enjoyed about AUKUS is watching it grow and become an inclusive society where really you can almost guarantee and count on seeing all the people you want to see that are arthroplasty surgeons. So everybody comes. It's an opportunity to see people that you haven't seen for a long time, oftentimes old fellows, residents, that sort of thing. It's been great to see everybody sort of take ownership of the society. People feel as though it's their own society. They come because of that. And uh, they view it as a chance to get together once a year or well, maybe more often, but uh, particularly this opportunity once a year to see people they haven't seen in a long time. And then, of course, there's the academic opportunities we all talk about. And virtually it's just different. Like, it's just, it feels good to see people face-to-face, to shake hands. Like, it's just... Well, there's no doubt about that. After this last year and a half for everybody, just uh, being together is fabulous, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a social great. element, too. People gather in the evenings, get together. You catch up in ways that you wouldn't in other ways. So it's, it's great. Yeah. What is one thing at this August that you are excited about or looking forward to? And it can be anything from, like, a paper to 
getting together with somebody and I'm put you on the spot there. But like, yeah, no, I'll tell you. Actually, honestly, I'm involved in a lot of educational activities, and one thing that I like to do all the time is be looking look for new talent, people that are coming up that are good speakers, smart, synthesize information well, and you can't really do that virtually. Sure. And so, being here, I get a chance to see people that are on the podium, on the stage, or thinking critically on their feet about things when they're asking questions for the audience, and I get the chance to sort of scan and see who's who's coming up, who has talent, and who we might make use of for educational things in the future. So uh -oh, for me, that's fun. Now we're fun. all sitting up straighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's sure we're starting up a little bit right there, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get into talking a little bit more about the AGRR, the American Joint Replacement Registry, for those who don't know. Would you talk to us a little bit about your involvement, where you see that going in the future, and how we can keep promoting it from an orthopedic surgeon standpoint? Sure. Well, it's one of the things, it's been a bit of a labor of love. Maybe you know that, but we started working on this, honestly, at the very start of my career, so 30 years ago. And there were several fits and starts. Eventually, it got to be a little more of a formed idea. But Dave Wellen, Bill Maloney, and I really have spent the last 20 years trying to get it going. The good news is now it is going, and everyone knows that. It's going really well. There's over two and a half million joints in it now, so it's become a big data repository. And I think it opens up a lot of opportunities for American orthopedics. It opens up the opportunity for us to know what our peers are doing. So there's just a simple reality that you can look in there and very easily figure out, for example, what percentage of primary hips are dual mobility implants or something like that. It gives us an opportunity to start studying in a more systematic way associations between things that happen in surgery and things that happen later. Registries are pretty good at demonstrating associations. They're not so good at demonstrating causality, but we can learn a lot about associations and it gives us hypothesis generating ideas. So I think that that's one of the great strengths of it. And then lastly, something I'm really excited about is that uh, one of my uh, new partners, Nick Bedard, has uh, started working on a pathway by which nested randomized control trials can be done within the AJRR. And the reason I'm so excited about that is that it creates a potential way in which you can reproducibly do randomized controlled trials without reproducing the infrastructure every time. So if the AGR has the infrastructure, all you've really got to do is figure out the right question and then figure out how to gather the data at various sites. But by creating a system where you can amalgamate all the data, put it together, do it the same way every time, it suddenly makes doing a randomized controlled trial 10 times easier. And I think that will transform our profession. I really believe that will be the game changer in our profession in terms of the quality research we can do. Yeah, one of the major goals of the Young Arthroplasty Group is to encourage collaboration between young investigators, young surgeons, and folks that maybe aren't at an academic practice. How can our group get involved with Dr. Bedard's projects? Nick is doing the first project, which is a nested trial, and the topic is something he had already started trying to do, and then he encountered all the roadblocks that you'd expect, trying to get various centers to work together. It's impossible. There's legalities, all that stuff. So we have a P30 grant through the NIH that allows us to put some money into this, and so Nick's process of going through this is going to be to take his project, which was the role of extended antibiotics in high-risk patients after primary joint arthroplasty, and have it be the single first trial, if you will, that goes through the AJR as a nested trial. Once he's got that infrastructure established, and once he's created the pathway, figured out how the legalities work, figure out how the data collection works, then I think it opens up great opportunities for your group to say, okay, what are some of the best questions we could answer that are hard to answer in one institution, that are hard to answer by ourselves, that if we just had seven groups working together, we could answer it. And that creates an opportunity for people that are in academic and non-academic settings to be involved. I mean, some of the, the biggest joint vol volumes are done in non-academic centers, right? So 
I think that that gives you an opportunity to say, okay, you might have always wanted to be involved in research, but you're at a place where you don't have big infrastructure. All you got to do is figure out a way to collect the data and collect it reliably. Once you can do that, then if we've got the rest of the infrastructure established, it'll be really easy, I think. Yeah, bypasses data sharing agreements, bypassing yeah. all the extra administrative support. 100%, it solves all that. I mean, you can imagine that those are always the roadblocks that kill these multiple multi-center trials. I mean, multi-center trials sound good, but it's the fact that it's so complicated to get the bureaucracy out of the way that's made them impossible. This, I think, will solve that problem. At least it has the potential to. We've got to demonstrate it. We're working on it, but I think we'll get there. Great. That's really exciting. It I is exciting, right? Yeah. Speaking of private practice, do you mind talking just really briefly for those surgeons that are in private practice, how they would get their hospitals involved in AJRR? Well, the first thing to do is sign up and submit data to the AJRR. So probably you guys know this, but right now, roughly 40% of the joint replacements done in the U.S. go into the AJRR. So that number is not as high as it should be. We'd like it to be more like some of the European countries where it's more like 90% or better. The impediment in the United States is that we don't have a nationalized healthcare system, so there's not some way to compel people to do it. So it has to be voluntary. But what I would say is there's certainly a sense of good stewardship. If you want to be an arthroplasty surgeon in America, you should be submitting your data. Why? Number one, it's the sort of communal do the right thing for the country thing. But there's also the reality that if you submit your data, then you can compare your data to everyone else. And that's powerful. You might think you know how you're doing compared to everybody else, but until you check, you don't really know. So you can submit your data. You can compare it to everyone else. You can't compare it to another individual practice, but what you can do is compare your individual practice or your hospital's practice collectively to the rest of the country. So that's valuable, both in terms of seeing what everyone's doing and also seeing how the outcomes are. Lastly, for somebody in private practice, it gives you a registry. So you don't have to create your own registry, which is expensive, time-consuming, and painful. All you got to do is just submit your data, which is pretty easy. And then all of a sudden, you've got all the statistical support of AJRR. You've got all the infrastructure to collect all the right data. And by the way, if you want to collect PROMS, which is going to be increasingly required by payers, you're going to have a platform that makes you allows you to do it super easily. So there's an economic incentive. There's an academic incentive if you want to be involved in modest ways or bigger ways. And then there's the sort of good community value as well. Sure. Yeah, thank you. So on the backside of the AJR report, we are starting to see a lot of granularity. And so hypothesis generation, like you talk about a lot, there are a lot of things. What are some of the hypotheses you see in the next couple of years that you think this is going to be really exciting to actually get down in the weeds and figure some things out? Yeah, I think rather than go into specific projects, what I would say is that I think you're exactly right, that one of the fun things about going through registry data is that as you poke through it, your mind will be stimulated to ask questions. Hmm. And you'll say to yourself, why is that? Is that true? And if it's true, what does it mean? And how do I figure out if it's true? So I'll just give you an example. A few years ago, somebody asked me to write a paper about registries. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go through a bunch of registries and look and sort of see what I find that's interesting. And as I poked through it, I realized that in every single registry in the world, the rate of infection in men after primary joint replacement is double that of women. Do any of you know that? It's not intuitively no. obvious, okay? But it's true, okay? So that's an example sort of things I said, well, is it true? So I looked at more registries, more registries. Everybody that reports it reports exactly the same thing. And now a few other people have caught on to that and are talking about it. But it, it creates a lot of questions you could ask, sure. right? Like, why is that? If it's true, what should we do about it? Yeah. If it's true, 
is there a reason it's true? Is there something different about men? Is it different about the men that are getting joint replacement? Is it, you know, what are the bugs involved? It's an interesting question, right? So that's just an example of the sort of thing when you get down to the granular data in a registry and poke around at it, you'll ask yourself. So you've got to have an acquiring mind. I guess you can put it that way, but you got to want to spend a little time. But you'll be surprised if it's your profession and you start looking at data, it'll always make you think harder. Let's talk about the paper that is, I think, getting presented tomorrow about extended oral antibiotics, or is, is it EO, EOA? What's the, what's a cool way to say EOA? I yeah, feel like I there should know. be a nice little, like... Yeah, you're right. There's not a, there's not <laughs> a simple uh, acronym, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll have to figure one out. But, the person uh, who figures it out will get credit. <laughs> so decreased superficial infection rate with extended antibiotics after an aseptic revision. Yeah. What do I do with the data from your study? I'm, I, you know, so you, you just summarized the data quite accurately. That's basically what the study showed. But what I would say is that any one study shouldn't usually change your practice unless it's so big and so powerful that the data are absolutely incontrovertible. Sure. What you should do, though, is put it in the context of what several studies together have shown. Right now, the data on extended antibiotics for various different high-risk situations in a rather anecdotal sense look pretty favorable, right? I mean, sure. there's enough there to make you say, okay, there's a possibility this could reduce the infection rate. But nobody's done a real perfect study on this, right? Sure. So all the studies, including ours, are flawed in one way or another in terms of inclusion criteria. There's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of length of antibiotics used, different types of antibiotics used. What you really need is a prospective randomized trial to really sort it out. And as you know, for infection problems, it takes a lot of patients, right? So sure. that's the reality nested in the AJRR. So that's why, exactly. So that's exactly why that study of Nick's will be so valuable. And if and if he can get that one done with primaries, then it's a very easy thing to say, okay, well, the next one to tackle should be revisions. And then the next one to tackle should be two-stage revisions and reimplantation. Do they stay on antibiotics for two months? Do they stay on it for six months? Do they right. stay on it forever? What's the right answer? You can think of all kinds of ones. You can think of some great studies to do related to DARE procedures, for example. Should you do them in one stage? Should you do them in two stage? Is there a role for more intraarticular antibiotics as Leo Whiteside's popularized? You can think of like so many good things to answer in our profession that are kind of hanging out there, but nobody's really had the ability to put their finger on and do a good trial because there hasn't been an infrastructure to do it. I, that's why I say this will change orthopedics. In all of your careers, I promise you, if we can get it so that it's easy to do it, it will totally change it because you're going to move to answering questions within a few years as opposed to having anecdotal papers come out here, anecdotal papers there. The papers aren't quite perfect. They're flawed. There's a general direction of the data, but it's not right down the highway. And so you just don't know. This allows you to actually say, okay, we know the answer to that. We're going to start doing that. And now we're going to move on. And we have the numbers. And improve the numbers the outcomes and, and, of the patients and, that we're and, taking care and of. And yeah. the fact that everybody's putting their data in there, at least everybody should be, allows you to have the numbers yeah. to answer the question. And answer it fast, right? So you can just start knocking off questions on the list. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually the chance That's to really finally exciting. move the needle. Yeah. Think about infection. Infection has not been reduced by anything we've done effectively for 30 years. I mean... As soon as people gave prophylactic antibiotics around surgery, since that time, we've never reduced the rate of infection. Greenhouses, UV lights, body exhaust suits, hasn't really changed it much. So there, there has to be some ways to change it. Maybe it'll be some new striking technology, but some of it may be chipping away at it with some of the things that we just talked about. Any final words of wisdom you have looking forward for our young arthroplasty members who are looking at 30 plus years, more of a career in a very changing environment? I would just say get involved. Get involved in something that interests you, that you're excited about. You'll make friends doing it. You'll have opportunities doing it. 
and eventually you'll help the profession and your patients. So get involved, figure out what turns you on and, and do it. Yeah. Thanks, it's Perfect. really been fun yeah, talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.